Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. On Tuesday the 11th of May, the Northern Territory Government passed the Youth Justice Amendment Bill that will bring more Aboriginal young people into the detention system, set presumption against bail when young people commit certain offences while already on bail. The children of the intervention, is the youth justice system failing them? This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. The Northern Territory Government's tough-on-crime approach has come under renewed scrutiny after controversial changes to youth bail laws were passed through Parliament last month. The Youth Justice Legislation Amendment Bill removes the presumption of bail for first-time offenders and automatically revokes bail if conditions are breached. The reforms have been met with steep criticism from Aboriginal legal and children's rights groups who say the changes have the potential to push Indigenous kids further into the system. First Nations Territorians are no stranger to the implementation of policies which disproportionately impact on their communities. Back in 2007, the Northern Territory Emergency Response, better known as the Intervention, was met with widespread criticism and has since failed to adequately address the issues it was set up for. In 2017, the Royal Commission into the Detention and Protection of Children in the Northern Territory identified a number of justice policies which had increased the rate of Aboriginal children entering the prison system. So how will these new bail laws affect First Nations communities? What is the legacy of the Northern Territory intervention? And what are the alternatives to locking kids up? Joining us tonight are independent member of the NT Legislative Assembly, Yingia Mark Goyala, Amnesty International Rights Lead, Nolan Hunter, and David Woodruff from the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. We begin the conversation with Yingia Mark Goyula. Despite significant opposition, he fought hard in the NT Legislative Assembly to block the passage of the Youth Justice Amendment Bill. Well, on... Tuesday the 11th of May, the Northern Territory Government passed the Youth Justice Amendment Bill that will bring more Aboriginal young people into the detention system, set presumption against bail when young people commit certain offences while already on bail. And it was the government, most of you will already know that it was rushed and something that was rushed to get things done. Of course, there are victims around the territory and in communities that we can understand that. But the bail laws or the Youth Justice Amendment Bill, the way it is, it's just not right. It doesn't seem really, really healthy for our children. We could have done it the other way around. There is another way that we can do it to try and fix this problem. But it just so happened the way it did. And uh, now it's up to us to try and work on this and talk to people and how we can try and convince the government to try and make it fit. Of course, everybody in the Northern Territory 
in way. There are people living in urban towns, in communities, and other communities, and other people living in, in bush communities and homeland towns that could look at this bill quite differently. It doesn't work for us over here. People can say it, it might be okay for the other people over in living in towns sitting out here, we would for us to be listened to by the government. And yet they rushed it in. And I, I put up a motion that I wanted to do, have a, a select committee, which we could go around with, with the members of the government, myself as an independent member, and as a couple or two, maybe one of the opposition and another uh, independent members who could go around, take a bit of time and do it properly around communities, around the Northern Territory. But it was voted out. They wouldn't wouldn't be in it. The government wouldn't support it. So I was disappointed there as well. So this is where we are now. It happened this way, and I did not support the government. I voted against this bill. I stood by myself, stood alone, strong, and powerful, and I said, no, it's not the way it is. It doesn't suit our people, my indigenous community across the territory. We know this will create hardened criminals and tells kids that they are no good. And it's that's the mind and the feeling that children get that when they grow up, after being in detention centres and in, in prison, they come out, who are they? So they're just nobody now. So might as well offend again or live uh, without a life that was worth them. A life that they were meant to be born for, to live a life of being who they are. So we want to create something for our children with the elders and leaders in the communities, we know that all children are born gifted and talented. And it is our job as leaders of the community to find out and help them find out who they really are. We are born into this world at a certain uh, different parts of the country, different parts of the world, like up here in the northern Northeast Arnhem Land, and we were born, and our ancestors walked this land, and they created a law. There was a law that we were born to, to live by that law, so that we all have an identity of who we are. And now, when government comes and brings in another set of law, trying to make us live in a assimilation or in a, in a, a mainstream that doesn't suit us. So this is where we want to say that we are sovereign people. We live on this country. We live by this land. This the environment around here is suited so that we both relate to one another. We say we are the land, we are the waters here, we are the song lines of this country that we can live by, and that makes us very proud of who we are. And we teach the children so that they grow up to be the future leaders. Carry on. Mind you, we can start to adopt 
the colonial or the um, a system that comes in education through Palander law, white man's law, through white man's education, there's education on country that we learn by, we have always learned. And this is where we want to all travel. And like I said, we are a sovereign people and governments need to stop making decisions for us and tell us what they think is best for our communities and our children. We know that locking up of kids is not the best thing that we can do or we can see. But for the last five years that I have been in the entry parliament, I have been fighting for self-determination and local solutions coming from the land, from the people on the elders of the country that we uh, raise our children through the local decision-making, through the grassroots of who we are. And that is how we want to spend time, a bit of talking about rapery or rapery camps. Rapery is a discipline and a discipline camp that takes a lesson in um, a certain time of our lives. As a child grows up, we discipline our children. We start to educate our children. When children reach the age of nine to 10, boys go through ceremony. The law is painted on their skin to make them respectable people, to respect them. That they now have responsibilities. Girls too, at that age, have ceremony. And from this time on, have respectful relationships with people, boys with girls, girls with boys, and the leaders in the communities, and have a, a really respectful time for our senior elders that they can learn something out of our elders, and then they become really who they are. They find out who the, what their identity are. They find out who they really are, and that will give them a lifetime song so that they can carry on they can take on that uh, education and discipline towards the future of their children. This education system needs to be maintained and recognised, not swept away by Western education and Western jobs. We also need support for diversion programmes like the rapidity camps, discipline camp or the rehabilitation camps, the education or training to be young leaders of the future who can carry on and be the leaders of our future generations are now struggling right now. On Milingimbi, where I live, we've had a rapery camp set up on one of the islands up here, on the Crocodile Islands, a place called Rapuma, which was an example of families trying to implement diversion programs on country for young people. And we tried that program straight after when children got into petrol sniffing, break-ins, and there were words that people weren't very happy about children breaking into the stakeholders' houses and breaking in. So the people, the elders, worked out a way and said, we'll do it the way we did 
for a long, long time through the practice that we will take our children onto country where they can learn discipline, where they can learn to be who they are, to hunt, gather, and have respect for country, respect for elders, serve people rather than making them disappointed or who can create problems that makes a community that is very, very unhappy the way these things happen in communities. And I have called for peacekeepers, but the word peacekeepers are the senior elders after young people grow up from their learning on country to be leaders of the communities, and then they become peacekeepers. You can work with other elders of clan groups. When there's disputes in communities, when there's disputes between clan and clan, who steps in? There are people already trained undergoing those discipline camps and ceremonies that will act as a peacekeeper. And the elders who can work to manage community problems. And now they are the ones that need to work with police to advise them on how to keep the peace in community. And these are the elders that has the same job that they can do policing on community. People have done that in our times. The um, a white man policing came through. So we are offering our elders to work with police to keep the community safety. From colonization, particularly with the intervention, our children have watched our elders being undermined when police step over elders and do not work with us. Our children see that we are disrespected and this has created confusion and disrespect among our young people. They are confused. Who do we listen to? Who is there to discipline us? Can we see our leaders to work as peacekeepers, to work with police and to work with our senior elders so that both sides of the law is being exercised to make a better community for our young people. Another thing that came in through the intervention and the stronger features was the CDP programs, the employment of CDP projects and programs has also taken elders away from traditional roles of governance and placed them in a busy work such as lawn mowing in the hub communities doing lawn mounds, or sometimes you would see the elders that would really be sitting in places of keeping an eye over how their tribe, how their clan is going, how are the children being taught and raised towards leadership. That power has been taken away from them, and now they have to go and work for the doll and serve another business where they can keep busy, and that's taken power away, that children have now nowhere to go to, to learn from. So the governance, the CDP has taken away the traditional role of governance and placed them in a busy community's life. Transition to the super shires, another one has also wiped out a village council, used to be a village council that were created by our senior elders, a model that 
was we live in communities up here in, in the remote communities on homelands on our earth stations that different clan groups live. And to live in one area, we need to have leaders from here, these camps, two each or one each, men and women, to form a community. This was a system long before the council of shires and uh, village council model, Balanda style model, came in through. So it will fit into the area where we create the system. It's not about Shire coming in and create, you belong here in the local local authority. But where does our people uh, stand? Our people are finding it now. There's not much power in here. Where's the power that we used to have a long time ago, where we can control our community, where we can look after our community? And that is what's been taken away so that we can see our elders doing lawn mowing sometimes and sometimes doing paintings, footpaths, and without keeping an eye on the clan, without keeping an eye on the community, that how do we maintain that structure of being a leader, being elders, keeping a watch over our clan groups, our future generations that we need to raise. Councils, our community decision-making groups have been lost now. It's been going away and it's been our elders find themselves disempowered. The policy of road towns has starved our homelands resources. Families have had to move into large communities and towns that are overcrowded now, bringing many clans onto foreign clan country, into another man's country, and creating problems for who takes responsibility for crime and young people. Homelands are our safest places back there on country, on our own clan groups country, where young people learn their responsibilities. In this time of stage where we are elders, and I have been calling so that we need to see those leaders, those councils, those uh, peacekeepers to stand and be occupied as peacekeepers through a paid positions in our communities so that we can maintain, look after our children to discipline and see when, when children or young people are ready to be taken on to ceremony where they can undergo countries or where they can undergo studies of learning to be a leadership, learning to be a young people that can serve and have respect for community and people. This is the self-determination and the local decision-making and pathway towards treaty. This is the way that we want to see things happen. We have been calling. I have been a representative to tell the government This is what my people wants to do. Even though I am um, an independent member of parliament here in the chamber, I am outnumbered, but I represent the people at their own country. And people are ready. We are ready. After being locked up in, in the major hub communities, people found that we have been disempowered. Powers have been taken away. Now, a lot of people have asked, 
I have kept saying in, in the chamber, the parliament house, in, in places where I have spoken about disempowerment, and people have said to me, but why aren't you disciplining your children? They're running wild. And I keep saying, because we have been disempowered. And they ask me, how are you disempowered? And I keep saying, you know that intervention? That is where it started. You know where the stronger features? Those policies have created a space that kept us away or kept us aside from taking part in disciplining our children, looking after our children, raising up our children, instead of the government coming to work with us, work together side by side, Balanda and Yorma are working together for the betterment of our children so that they have a better life, not locked up in Dondale, not locked up in prisons. When they come out, they are nothing. They are nobody. And this is what we want to fight for. This is what I've been fighting for. And this is what I want to find, a freedom of space where we can have self-determination and to know that we are a sovereign nation and we deserve to be respected. You've been listening to independent member of the NT Legislative Assembly, Yingia Mark Goyula. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're bringing you a focused discussion on criminal justice legislation in the Northern Territory and its impact on Aboriginal children. We'll continue the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from Benny Walker. Here he is with Undercover of My Skin.
That's Benny Walker with Undercover of My Skin. Let's return now to our conversation around youth justice in the Northern Territory. And we pick things up with David Woodruff providing an historical look at events that preceded the introduction of the Northern Territory intervention, its impact and the way forward. For over a century, Aboriginal customary law has been recognised in the Northern Territory with the commencement of the Northern Territory Supreme Court. Its judges recognised that Aboriginal people had a very special place within the justice system who were bound by their own laws and still are. Courts accommodated customary law in accepting evidence of punishment, customary practice and law, and it was taken into account into sentencing because it was recognised that Aboriginal people were subject to two laws and two punishments. So over the next 90 years, there grew with a greater understanding by the white legal system and um, maturity in accommodating customary practices and Aboriginal practice that weren't confined to just criminal law and violence, such as family law and civil law and in recognising traditional Aboriginal marriages and customary damages and torts or for things such as customary loss of cultural practices and dance and inability to participate in um, ceremonies. So it's a very wrong misnomer that we see and hear about when we talk about Aboriginal customary law, that it's solely about violence and so-called payback. Now, it's also important as a criminal lawyer who practised prior to the intervention, during the intervention and after the intervention, is going back to how we arrived at that situation. In 2006, you know, there was extensive national media coverage in relation to child abuse, serious violence in the Northern Territory. It led to a very important review, as we all may remember, the Little Children and Sacred Report by Pat Edinson and um, Rex Wildcusey. At the heart of that, one of the key discussion points was recognising that there can't be any genuine and lasting change in dealing with dysfunction in communities, including child sexual abuse, unless Aboriginal law is utilised and incorporated as an integral part of solutions. And we can say that in so many different sort of aspects. But that important message was forgotten and was forgotten in in just a couple of days. The then Prime Minister John Howard, within a couple of days, declared a national emergency in the Northern Territory that led to the Northern Territory emergency response. And aside from the issues that has been raised about the impacts on communities, we also remember that, you know, there was the military, the army coming into communities, income management, increased policing, but there was also a legislative response. But before we get to that, we must not forget the actual impacts back, and we've heard some of those impacts tonight about what actually occurred during that period of time. But there's instances that I can recall of grandmothers uh, taking their children running down to creeks because they thought the army and police would come to take their children away is what happened during the stolen generation. So the government passed the emergency response legislation that primarily stated about prohibiting courts having regard to customary law or practice when considering either bail or sentencing as a mitigating or aggravating factor in Uh, those interests can can go to the present Crimes Act to see that. It's still on the statute books. But it's important to remember it only had application to the Commonwealth and to all Northern Territory offences. No other state or territory is subject to this. And so having been a practising criminal lawyer over in the Kimberley, 
I could raise issues in relation to Aboriginal customary law, but I can't do this in my own home territory. It's also to remember fundamentally that this legislation doesn't preclude all customary practices and beliefs of other nationalities, races and religions in the Northern Territory. It's just only Aboriginal people. An example of that is that in the NT we had certain importation laws and possession laws in relation to Carver. And in prosecutions of those cases, the courts have been able to consider and take into account the importance to, of Carver when persons different cultures and practice of Pacific Islanders. Now, one of the issues is that what it's meant practically on the ground as a criminal lawyer, as a practitioner and within our justice system is that Aboriginal customary law couldn't be taken into account as a mitigating factor in listening the penalty for, as I've said before, people receiving a double punishment. And so there's also the situation of people being in a lesser possession in not having equality before the law. But one very serious unintended consequence was that the intervention has had a direct impact on Aboriginal culture, belief systems and religion. In 2011, there was a prosecution that involved desecration by a construction company on a sacred site in digging a, a, a drop toilet hole and the failure to remove it once custodians became aware of it. Now, that company received a $500 fine. On appeal to the Supreme Court, there was an appeal on the basis of the courts failing to take into account the harm and damage done as well as a victim impact statement that spoke of the ongoing hurt and shame of traditional customs. But the court couldn't take that into account. It couldn't take into account, as an aggravating feature of that offence, the impact on Aboriginal people of their customs, their religions and their beliefs, and importantly about the harm and the ongoing hurt and shame of what had happened to their tradition uh, sacred sites. Very quietly... What then flowed in 2012 was an amendment of a provision to exclude now the Heritage Act, Conservation Act and the Aboriginal Lands Rights Act. But I think that's a very important thing to realise, that it raises an important issue that it does silence Aboriginal victims of offences and crimes, as, as recall, in all aspects. And we must remember that Aboriginal women are predominantly the victims of crime in that their cultural hurt, damage and features of that nature can't be taken into account by courts. Again, this would only apply to an Aboriginal person and not the wider community. The intervention really brought a real unravelling, not of just customary law, but the practices within the jurisdiction. We saw the discontinuation of Aboriginal community courts or circle sentencing the importance of elders providing advice in sentencing and leadership to magistrates in remote communities, but also importantly, it impacted upon the education of our judiciary and understanding of Aboriginal law and importantly, the direct impacts on Aboriginal people in sentencing and the absolute, and we can see over the past decade, the blowout in Aboriginal incarceration not only in youth detention, but also in adult imprisonment. The absolute damage also was spoken to and reviewed by many as part of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement consultations that recognised that these past policies and practice have undermined the capacity to lead and influence communities. It has seen in the breakdown of social structures, kinship systems, 
as well as the fracturing of both Aboriginal rights, roles and responsibility. I think fundamentally one of the key things is that it has undermined trust between Aboriginal people and governments. And we've seen that yet again with the recent commencement of these bail laws. One great shining light that occurred just last year, and it would come as no surprise from the audience tonight, that it was led in Parliament by Yanila Gulbara in his speech about the need to recognise Aboriginal customary law in the Northern Territory. His speech, which was around two systems of law walking together, led to a Northern Territory law reform review into Aboriginal customary law. And the absolutely great pleasure in meeting and talking with many elders and communities basically spoke about the continuation of the voice today of Aboriginal people around Aboriginal law. Of Aboriginal law is not artificial, such as white law. Law, spirituality, morality, respect, discipline and education are all essentially different aspects of the same thing, all designed to bring about peace, prosperity and social harmony from the Yonu-Madayin legal system. This report has been provided to the Attorney-General and provided key recommendations. Those key recommendations is to petition the Commonwealth to repeal both the provisions that I've spoken about, 15AB and 16AA of the Crimes Act, to amend sentencing acts in the Northern Territory so when there's sentencing of Aboriginal offenders, courts can take into account the unique systemic issues and background of issues that affect Aboriginal people, but also not only uh, the greater call for experiential Indigenous experience reports for Aboriginal offenders before courts, but also developing important unique systems and background factors through local and youth justice courts that includes elders, community justice groups, community profiles and other means. I think the most important legacy of the Northern Territory's intervention was the mindlessness in its goals, the fact that it brought about a differentiation in the treatment of Aboriginal people, that that decision-making was not based on evidence, on fact or reason or consultation. And we see those same four issues arising again and again in the Northern Territory when it comes to issues that surround Aboriginal people, whether it's the Royal Commission into Youth Detention, whether that is the bail, the rollback of bail laws just a few weeks ago and the, the gross impacts that is occurring right now in the incarceration of Aboriginal youth in the Northern Territory and the ever-increasing numbers that, that is occurring where there is no solution. The only solution to this issue and to the intervention and this mindlessness is to consult, listen to Aboriginal people, you know, let's break this system that has continually failed Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory of children, communities and families, and let's give back that autonomy, that sovereignty, that ability for Aboriginal people to have destiny over their own lives. Wow, thank you so much, David. So powerful. And, of course, those powerful words underpinned by 
your mm. extraordinary activism and advocacy in this space. And no one can doubt that you've been at the coalface of this and it's no easy place to be. So really appreciate all you've given for the work that you've done and for sharing that with us this evening. I do see that Nolan has made his way back to us tonight. So I um, will welcome you back again as the Amnesty International Indigenous Rights Lead. And thanks so much for being with us. And I'll hand over to you now for some of your reflections. Thank thank you very much. And and sorry, I dropped out earlier, folks. Um, Technology at its best. (laughs) So look, um, just working backwards, I think first off I might just explain that uh, Amnesty International, my role there, we are working on raising the age of criminal responsibility. This country puts Aboriginal kids mostly in prison at the age of 10 years old in this country. It's allowable and it happens. The other thing to acknowledge is that the significant disproportionate rate of incarceration of Indigenous people and Indigenous children. The changes to the new or the legislation for the Territory and the Youth Justice Bill, from our point of view, simply means that there will be more children heading to prison, despite what's being said and some of the details of you know, the presumption against bail or criminalising bail, the electronic bracelets. There's a whole range of discretionary ability of police around prescribed offences to determine what constitute a serious crime, etc., etc. There's a whole range of things that's proposed in there that really just all point to the fact that it's designed to send more Aboriginal kids to prison. Dondale, we saw what happened there. That place is overcrowded. It's beyond its capacity for the number of children it was supposed to hold, even right now. And we were in the Territory, so I was up in uh, Darwin and and Alice Springs and uh, Catherine, etc. And we talked to a number of politicians and different stakeholders up there. And uh, people were concerned with the introduction of this bill. There wasn't a proper process around consultation And surprise, surprise, uh, similarly with the Northern Territory intervention, no consultation, just simply pushing out a legislation or bill that will basically affect people and no regard to the need to consult and and work out what are the issues. At the very least, some process that acknowledges that people are going to be affected and the decency and courtesy to speak to people. So when I think about the Northern Territory intervention and uh, the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act in order to do something racially discriminant. So what happened back in the early days under the control of the Australian governments back then and the control that they asserted over people? And so when the Northern Territory intervention happened, the end result, or the net result, was that the government of Australia wanted total control over people's lives. So it's no different to what happened to Aboriginal people back in the 30s or 40s or whatever it was. So the word disempowerment in its full meaning uh, was really highlighted back in history, but it's now highlighted through this as a process that happened. And the interesting thing about 
apart from the disregarding of the rights of Aboriginal people through this as a means without feeling the need to talk to people, feeling the need to consult about what the, the effects were going to be and how it was going to um, affect people. The interesting thing is that it disregarded people's rights in the first instance. And it means that if it was under the guise of protecting children, child abuse, that, in my view, because I've seen it happen in other places where in Western Australia, predominantly the Kimberleys where the West Australian government was going to close 150 remote communities, its first statement was about the need to not have to provide resources for essential services, power and water and everything that the rest of Australia has for granted. Two months later, it came out with a statement that said, oh, we have to go in and save those children from abuse. So the strategy was to demonise the Indigenous community. And interestingly, the wider Australian statistics on child abuse is worth having a look at. It is troubling, but one thing I can guarantee you on the basis of the behaviour of this country's governments and laws, they will not ever go into inner suburban Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or anywhere and take over people's home because of the rate of child abuse that they talked about in the Northern Territory. So what you're seeing there is a different treatment of Aboriginal people. Then you see a discriminant law that's being produced specifically to target Aboriginal kids. So this country has anti-discrimination or supposedly laws that protect people from discrimination. But what we saw back then was that the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act of 75 meant that Aboriginal people were just as vulnerable as they were back in the 50s and 40s, etc. And it meant that then anything could be done to us and to our people. And that's precisely what's happened. So at the heart of this, I think, is to understand that when you can do that and when you can see something so overt as the targeting of Indigenous kids where the evidence says that crime rate is going down, the rate of incarceration, etc. There's all these statistics and everybody knows them. And people have been talking. In our discussions, when we go and travel, we were in Queensland the previous month, going through the similar process with the introduction of a youth justice bill. It was significant, slightly different in that there was a consultation, there was a hearing, and people were able to give submissions and things. But it amounted to the same thing. And that was the specific targeting of a race of people, specifically Indigenous kids, who made up, in terms of the youth offending rates, a lower proportion of the overall offending. And so one consistent thing in our conversation that, that was said repeatedly with the politicians that we went, we went to Parliament in Queensland, up in Brisbane, and in the Northern Territory, and we spoke to different politicians, etc. Those that spoke out or did not agree with it, had some really good things to say. But one thing that was said consistently on a number of occasions was the politicians who spoke about being more concerned about the need to be seen to be doing something to this perception of a out-of-control youth problem uh, with a crime rate and the need to be seen to be doing something so they don't lose their seats. They literally, those were their words. We have to do this, otherwise we will lose our seat next election. So 
that's troubling for me because when a politician is more concerned about their seat than about the people they are supposed to protect, then there's this discussion about cars being stolen or whatever else, break and entry and all that kind of stuff. And there's an outcry. Well, we need to be protected from all these kids. But who's going to protect those children? Where's the question about protecting the rights and safety of the children? Who will end up in places like Dondale? And the other thing worthy of note is many of those children in those places like Dondale have had problems. They have mental problems. They have social emotional problems. They have FASD. They have brain development, mental capacity issues. And so once they're thrown into the prisons, the prison can't cater because that's not what they're designed for. They can't cater for the needs of kids that need special help attention. And so the situation is exacerbated more and it's a a greater blow for the children who are going to be suffering there. And then you combine that with other factors where you start to have things that prompted the inquiry into Dondale where children were being, their human rights abuse, there were criminal negligence, there were assaults, there were a whole range of things. And the Royal Commission into Dondale, the astounding thing is that in spite of the Royal Commission happening and all the recommendations that came out of it about all the things that they needed to address, to totally see it disregarded and go do exactly the opposite of what the whole point was supposed to be. It means that the laws that are being made, it kind of highlights that they're made on a whim. They're made on the basis of public pressure. They're made on no logic as to the credibility of research that unfacts and evidence that highlight why something is needed. That does not occur. That didn't occur here, despite the fact that people are well aware inside and outside of the government, the police are aware of all the statistical information. And the other thing we found is that even police were saying this things uh, wouldn't work. They know what was coming. And then from there, what happened is you ended up with a process that's going to put kids back. And once you end up in this trap going through the system, there's a likelihood that it's a training ground and kids are going to end up career criminals or criminals or are going to be pulled down that path in the wrong direction. The other thing to acknowledge is there is nothing, nothing that can show that sending kids to jail works. I think everybody's in agreements about that. And there's enough evidence around that as well. So Amnesty International talks a lot about community-led initiatives where people, if they are in control, that is, if they haven't had their rights suspended, if they haven't had their ability to make decisions for themselves, to be empowered, to be a big part of the solutions. And there are good examples around the country where these diversion from a prison, away from prison, those social justice reinvestment, you know, that that is the way to go. The community-led initiatives. In, in Queensland, Palaget, despite the about-face, initially funded those on-country programs for uh, Mount Isa, Cairns, and Townsville. And look, there's other examples, but and work particularly, you know, around... That is a model. 
in the Territory, you've got other operators in there. Across in the Kimberleys, you have things like the Euroman Project. Those things that work, though, don't tend to get the level of support that they should. So, so all the answers are there. All the solutions are there. The community, the Indigenous people themselves, all of these things around solutions are there. But I'm stumped as to why politicians just refuse. Well, I know why. It's because they, it's about the optics, about their constituency and maintaining their seat. That's all I could bring it down to. And when that occurs, that means that we have people sitting in parliament, sitting in those positions, not to represent the people, but to represent themselves. So look, I, I the frustration is there. I just think that what's really at the heart of this is, you know, the overt racism of a system that by default will mean that Aboriginal people in every manner of social and socioeconomic circumstance will be defined to poor evidentiary low indicators because it means that there is this whole of system approach to the way Aboriginal people that's been far too long been the accepted norm in this country. That Aboriginal people can be treated like this and it's okay. Aboriginal kids can be sent to jail and it's okay. As young as 10 years old and it's okay. The children are led to believe by some of the statistics and figures that the children are close to 100% represented of those being all Aboriginal in incarceration between the ages of, what was it, 10 to 17. So that's shocking, and this country ought to be really alarmed about that. And so if I really wanted to think uh, make a final point about this, it would be to understand that what is it that those systems, institutions, mechanisms, legislative frameworks, policies, etc., that perpetuate the status quo for Aboriginal people as being the subject of all of these types of atrocities? And then the other is that people in Australia have a good heart. They know right from wrong. And so, you know, everybody plays a part. And that's one of the roles of amnesty is to mobilize people to stand up and to rally and to campaign and do all of those things. And there are other like-minded organizations that we are linked to. There is a coalition of indigenous and non-indigenous organizations doing their bit to raise attention to this, to protest, to you know, write to politicians. There are so many fronts. And when you look at it, it's quite a groundswell of activity and movement, but yet somehow the politicians still end up doing what they do best, and that is to wrest control of people's lives away from them and take control of their lives so that they disempower them and they then are pretty much guaranteeing that the government determines the outcome for Aboriginal people by its constructs. So, look, that's all I wanted to say on that. The Northern Territory is a whole bag of symptoms. Uh, Everything that we deal with in our everyday life as Aboriginal people are symptoms of this uneven playing field. And there's no consequences. You've just heard Nolan Hunter, Amnesty's Indigenous Rights Lead. Before that, you heard from David Woodruff from the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, or NAJA. 
They were taking part in the Amnesty International Australia online forum, The Children of the Intervention, Is the Youth Justice System Failing Them? That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we preview the latest work from the Bangara Dance Theatre. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.